Well, welcome everybody. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington here at Mount Vernon. That's George Washington's own presidential library. And I'm delighted to have with me as a guest today, Laura Riccio, who is our speaker tonight for the Michelle Smith Lecture Series, where she's going to talk about her new book, The Marquis, Lafayette Reconsidered. Laura, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So just for our audience out there, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you currently gainfully employed or not? I am currently gainfully <laughs> employed, thankfully. Um, I'm currently serving as a dean of the School of Undergraduate Studies at the New School in New York. Uh, my background is actually in French art history and cultural history. Um, and I really came to Lafayette through the French Revolution. Yeah, I, I noticed. So you got your PhD at Columbia in an art history department. Yes. And your earlier book, your earlier monograph is, what's the title of that for everybody? It's called Adelaide Labiguillard, Artist in the Age of Revolution. Right, so the, you're attracted to the Age of Revolution, which is obviously a massive historiography and uh, French uh, historiography. Why were you attracted to the French Revolution as a thing to study? To be honest, what really interested me about the French Revolution was the complexities of it. Mm was the fact that I think that we often tend to think about historical progress as moving forward, simply forward, always forward. Well, that's the American way for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact is that oftentimes history doesn't work that way, and sometimes we have history going one step forward and two steps back. Mm. And that was actually what really interested me about the French Revolution, was the fact that it was not a simple, clear story all the way through. So my ignorance will shine through here. Now, I used to teach a comparative revolutions class, and I used to teach the French Revolution in that, in the way that you can in a comparative revolutions class, which is very poorly and very quickly. Uh, so I'm not familiar with this artist that you mentioned. So tell us a little bit about who that person was. Sure. Well, very few people are familiar with her, actually. Um, so you're hardly alone. <laughs> um, but I will say that there's actually a magnificent self-portrait by her in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, I'm a native New Yorker, and so I grew up going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm. And this self-portrait's enormous. It's about six feet tall, and it shows her in a beautiful blue satin dress seated behind an easel with two female students behind her. Mm. And I always admired this portrait, and I didn't know anything about the artist. As I got to learn more about the French Revolution, I got to learn more about her. And what I realized is that she was one of a handful of women, female artists, who during the old regime before the French Revolution actually managed to be extremely successful. Mm, mm -hmm. And the ironic thing is that those women, she in particular, lost much of their audience mm. and lost much of their possibilities for success during the revolution. Well, that's interesting. I, I think so. As a, a non-specialist, my belief is that you know women in French ancien regime culture, right before the revolution, there's, there's very powerful women. Uh, you know, the, of course, the queen being one. But you know, the, you think of the salons, and you think of all the the great women who were sort of managing affairs. Uh, you know, literally uh, managing affairs and managing statecraft all at the same time. I mean, is that does that disappear over the kind of harshness of the revolution, or what, what, are you, what do we see in that way? Yeah, it's really interesting. You're absolutely right. The period right before the French Revolution, I think, was in some ways a high point for women 
in terms of their influence of a certain in class culture. Right. exactly yeah. of a certain class although actually la Guillard is an interesting story because she was not of that class mm. her father was actually uh, a shopkeeper mm. and um but she grew up in a neighborhood that was very close to the louvre and she had a knack for art and she spent a lot of time hanging around with artists and she also slowly worked her way up the hierarchy the social hierarchy so that she became the first painter to the king's aunts. That's interesting. Yeah, great cities seem to always have that opportunity for very talented people to rise a little bit. And certainly Paris in the late 18th century was that. Absolutely. The Paris in the late 18th century was a bustling emporium, mm. um, a place where uh, the finest and all kinds of goods were produced, um, and people who could make them um, mm. were very highly valued. Yeah, uh, great. So now the Met, one of my favorite paintings at the Met is Emanuel Leutze, Washington Crossing the Delaware, of course, which is a nice transition. We're here at Mount Vernon, after all. We're here to talk about her new book. Uh, how did you get into the American Revolution, from being into the French Revolution? That's a very different thing. Well, it's actually really interesting. Uh, it was actually through La Guillard. Hmm. So there's uh, a museum in Washington, D.C. called the National Museum for Women in the Arts. Mm -hmm. And they have a painting by La Guillard, which is known as a portrait of Madame de Lafayette. Mm. It was believed to be a portrait of Lafayette's wife by La Guillard. I see. So I did a great deal of research into this portrait, only to conclude at the end that it was not, in fact, a portrait of Lafayette's wife. But in the process of doing that research, I became extremely interested in Lafayette's story. What was it, Lafayette's mother, or was it another Madame no, no, de Lafayette? No. It was no. nobody at all who oh, was okay. even vaguely no related Lafayette. to Lafayette. <laughs> it's just that there was a period in American history mm. when anything coming over from France was considered to be Lafayette. Mm. It was the first name that came to anybody's mind, and if you wanted to sell a painting in America, you would get a much higher price <laughs> if it was a painting that related to Lafayette. <laughs> Yes, uh, uh, Americans with money have often been preyed upon by Europeans selling off their patrimonies and claiming they were one thing and not the other. But uh, that's what we get for trying to look classy, I guess. Uh, well, that's a really interesting connection. Uh, and, and you just decided, I'm going to go for Lafayette. Well, you know, I will say one thing, that hmm. uh, after working on La Guillard, and I worked on her for a good 10 years before I published the book, I did get a little bit tired of my saying the person's name who I was dedicating my life to and receiving a blank stare. <laughs> yes. um, and so Lafayette yeah. is somebody who I've been discovering more and more, in fact, since I wrote the book. Every American has some connection to mm -hmm. Well, here at Mount Vernon, we love Lafayette. And this year marks, of course, the return of Lafayette's frigate L'Amion. Uh, which has been reconstructed at Rochefort. Yes, at Rochefort. And you've been on the boat, the ship. I have. I had. I, it was sheer happenstance, but I happened to be in France about a year and a half ago when the ship was recently completed, and I actually took the train down from Paris and back just mm. in one day, just so I can walk on that ship. And at that point, I didn't realize it was coming here this year. Mm. Well, it's an extraordinary coincidence, especially you know the way you start your book when you you. You note that Lafayette is, of course, a, a, a national hero in America, even if Americans don't exactly know why they've heard of the name Lafayette. There's Lafayette streets and all over the country, uh, and uh, there's Lafayette College. You know, there, there are many ways we remember uh, the Marquis. 
But in France, he's either a forgotten figure or certainly not a figure of great renown. Talk a little bit about how you kind of came, come to understand that. Yeah, it's really interesting. So because I am an art historian, when I first started thinking about working on this book, the first thing I did was I contacted curators in France to go and look at the ways that Lafayette was represented. So I made an appointment at Versailles, at the Chateau of Versailles, to look at some paintings and sculptures that they had of Lafayette. And the book opens with this anecdote where I went to see a sculpture of Lafayette and the French curator took me to the room and it was an outbuilding. It was nowhere near any place anybody has ever gone for a very long time <laughs> in Versailles. The room was a small room, it was dark, there was dust. And as I was looking at the bust, the French curator said, why should we have a bust of Lafayette? Mm. And at first I thought that it was an honest question and no. I started mm. to try to explain. But it turned out <laughs> that he was actually making a point. He, yeah, he knew his uh, he knew his history. <laughs> he did. <laughs> the curator at the Louvre. Knew, he did. Knew, the knew funny, funny story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, uh, who who was the bust by that one in particular? That was by Jean Antoine Houdin. Oh, it was Houdin's bust. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Well, you, have you, you've seen the the Houdin uh, terracotta bust? We, the, the, Mumford and Ladies Association have here. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, Udon, I think also, didn't he also do the sculpture of Washington that's in the uh, state capitol in Virginia? That's right, so he, when he came over to Mount Vernon in 1785, it was to execute that commission to create a, a standing uh, statue of, of, of Washington, and, and so the bust was just a, a consequence of that, plus he sold many of them back in France. Yes. Um, he was actually trying to get the commission for a, a, an equestrian statue of Washington for that the uh, Continental Congress was giving out, but he didn't win that commission. So. Who won it? I'm not sure. I don't know if it actually was given away at that time. Huh. But maybe uh, see, my ignorance is being revealed. I'm that's sorry. something. That's something. No, I, sh I should know, but I, I don't know. Udon did not uh, win it, uh, or it never came through. Uh, so, uh, all right, let's get back to the book itself. So, you you present here. The Marquis, and the subtitle says Lafayette Reconsidered. What are we reconsidering about the Marquis de Lafayette? Well, you know, I personally first encountered Lafayette essentially as a statue. Mm. Um, I'm from New York. There is a Lafayette Street in Manhattan. There's Lafayette Street in Brooklyn. There's a Lafayette statue in Union Square Park. There's a Lafayette statue in Morningside Park. <laughs> there are Lafayette statues everywhere. and I met him as a statue. <laughs> As I started diving into his archives and learning more about him and about his daily life and about um, the things he cared about and about his failures and tragedies that he mm. experienced, I came to understand that he was not a statue. He was a person. And my reconsideration of him was really meant to be to turn him into a human being mm. so that we could understand him as somebody who was not born better than us necessarily, was not born to greatness, but who was determined to achieve it mm. and did so. Mm. So uh, before we get into the arguments of the book, where were the, the most useful archives uh, that you used? And if you I'll put you in the spot, uh, I need a funny archive story. Everybody has one in France for sure. Well, a funny archive story is not hard to come by. <laughs> and um, to be honest, the most useful archives that I used were right here in Washington, D.C. in the mm. Library of Congress. Mm. Um, because the Library of Congress, through a series of complicated circumstances, ended up um, 
being the institution that microfilmed most of Lafayette's materials that were held at his chateau at Lagrange. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'll give you my funny archive story, which is that after years of working in the French archives, the very first day I was working in the Library of Congress in the manuscript division, I was sitting in front of a microfilm machine mm -hmm. and out I've, of the I've corner... I've been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw an archivist walking towards me. I immediately recoiled from the machine and said, I'm so sorry, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> and she said, you're not doing anything wrong. I'm here to help. And I thought, oh, help. Because in French archives, I am constantly being reprimanded mm. for doing something wrong. Mm. Wow. Different cultures. Okay, so let's get into uh, the Marquis Lafayette reconsidered. One of the first things that you describe is of a, a boy growing up in France who's kind of an outsider. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, Lafayette actually did not grow up in Paris. He grew up in an area called the Auvergne, which is a very rural area, about 400 miles south of Paris. It's a volcanic area. It's an area that even today, I don't think there's a fast food restaurant. Mm. It's, it's really very, very rural. Um, and there, his family represented pretty much the totality of the local elite. Mm. But through a series of circumstances, he ended up married into one of the most influential families at the court of Versailles. Mm. And at the court of Versailles, he was considered an outsider. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about his great wealth that he, he acquires because of the death of relations, which is uh, one way to do it, I guess. And, uh, you know, you're, at one point, I think you mentioned he's, uh, the, the rents or the, the receipts, the revenue from his investments and his properties brings in 130,000 livres a year, which seems an, an extraordinary sum. That's exactly how he ended up married into uh, <laughs> such a, 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 a high-status family. Mm. It's actually an interesting story. Somebody asked me at a talk the other day, why would this family, the Noai family, that was so well-connected, so socially prominent, why would they marry one of their daughters to this man who is something of a mm. provincial? Mm. And the answer is that they had many daughters, <laughs> and they had to come up with many dowries. Mm -hmm. And Lafayette was in a situation where he was willing to take a smaller dowry because he had a lot of money, but what he needed was social connections. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that story still plays out today. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that certainly played out a lot in the 18th century in any European country where rank mattered so much. And Lafayette was ambitious. Absolutely. Yeah, what did he want? I mean, he wanted glory. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in the, a bit of time in the book too, talking about what that meant. Yeah. Because glory in the 18th century did not mean, you know, having a lot of splendid objects. It meant meriting a great reputation, being known for doing something of value. Mm. Yeah, the fame, right? Fame. In this sort of uh, classical sense that it's going to last the ages to do great feats and be recognized for your virtues. Exactly, yeah. which is very different from our notion of fame today, which is a very fleeting celebrity on well, YouTube. Yeah, the reality TV show. Um, that's why we're doing this podcast, because we're looking for fame, but, uh, but not like uh, Lafayette's fame. <laughs> so uh, it's a fame based on great service to your country and patriotism and virtue in the grand uh, ancient sense. 
Um, his bride is 14 when they marry. What Did she want to marry Lafayette, or do we know? or how, how was their relationship over the course of their life? So she apparently wanted to marry Lafayette. They were actually reasonably well uh, suited for each other, which was not necessarily part of the equation in a lot of marriages right. in this time. Mm. You know, people were married because it would advance the family interest, not because of any particular compatibility. But in this case, actually, it turned out that they were extremely compatible. And she, I have to say, was a remarkable woman. And I came to admire and appreciate her more and more the more I studied. So he marries into this really connected family. Why doesn't he just make a, a famous career in France? Why does he leave? Well, two things happen. The first thing is that he imagines that he'll have a career in the army, and he's certain that this will be his destiny. The problem is that the French army at that particular moment was in the process of reforming itself. Mm. Um, they had lost fairly badly in uh, what we know as the French and Indian War, uh, what they call the Seven Years' War. And because of that, they were actually tossing out of the ranks of the high military officers men like Lafayette who had risen through the ranks due to wealthy connections. So he found himself actually removed from the army. The other thing... Yeah, I think you have the nice phrase that he was reformed. Uh, or he, he said that about himself. I was reformed out of the army. <laughs> exactly. That was the phrase that they used, was reformed. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. he was reformed out of the army. <laughs> um, and then at the same time, what his in-laws wanted for him was a career at court. They wanted him to make a career at court. But this was a young so man... So what does that mean? Does that mean he would have some kind of administrative position at Versailles? Would it be largely titular? Would it be a position of diplomacy or statecraft? Or would, would a courtier that they wanted, a court, I mean, would it just be a person who's around the, the king? Well, I think that what their family had sort of specialized in mm. was not necessarily holding any official titles or positions, but nonetheless having the ear of the king. Uh, influence. Influence. Connections and influence. and So you have to do a lot of performance. I mean, you, the, the French, the Versailles is all about performativity, right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Lafayette, who is extremely... Give, me a give the audience a sense of what that means. I mean, what does a typical day at court look like at Versailles? Oh, well, it starts with the levee, which is when the king's ceremonial rising from the bed. So uh, what happens is those people at court who are in the highest favor get the great honor of standing around the king's bed while he gets out of it. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I mean, I mean, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, and the whole day is structured like that with all these, these, these uh, set pieces. Really, uh, it's a pageant. Uh, and so Lafayette is ill-suited to that. Precisely, Lafayette was someone who was earnest. He was eager. He was honest. He was enthusiastic, and all of these traits were very much out of favor. Uh, in this very performative society. He was burning, as you point out, with this sense of the, the kind of enthusiasm for classical republicanism. How did that, where did that come from? I mean, why, where did his education put him in, in that direction? It's a really interesting story. So in France in the 18th century, the young men of the highest society, when they studied, what they studied was the great Greek and Roman histories. Mm. Mm, mm. Right, you've got her to learn Latin, and they're reading 
They're reading Latin. Exactly. <laughs> they're reading Latin. They're learning about all the great Roman Republic, the great Greek democracies. Cicero. They're reading Cicero. They're reading. Uh, they're reading uh, Livy. Livy. Tacitus. The Plutarch's lives. Plutarch's lives. When those lives are the lives that the, I mean, he wanted to basically be in Plutarch's lives. Exactly. I mean, that's what he wanted. Okay, so well, you're his Plutarch then, I guess. So, <laughs> uh, that's great. So he he goes to America. It, it's controversial. The king doesn't want him to. Nobody really gives him permission to leave when he goes. It's his first rebellion of many, perhaps. Uh, and uh, and well, I'll let you tell it, but. Um, what strikes me about his arrival in the American revolutionary scene is, unlike a lot of the other French officers who are showing up, he seems, on the one hand, to be like completely Pollyannish and just enthusiastic and optimistic, even in the face of what's clearly not the reality that he expected. Um, and he also succeeds where many of these other officers do not succeed to actually get a position. It's absolutely true, and I think those two things are connected. Mm. Uh, I think he had a sort of disarming honesty and charm and straightforwardness that just won people over. Mm. Well, he wasn't taking a salary. That helped. He was not <laughs> taking a salary. Again, his wealth came into play here. Mm. Uh, he did not need a salary, and he didn't want a salary. All he wanted was that fame of the mm. kind that you talked about. So he shows up and starts working with Washington right away. He's right away. Just I'm going to stay with George Washington. Washington says, you know, you're welcome to stay, and he takes it literally. It's extremely true. I think that Lafayette was also, I think this is not inconsequential that he was an orphan, mm. that his father had died before he was two years old. And the moment that he saw George Washington, he just immediately admired him and respected him and wanted to learn from him. Mm. Uh, you know what, I, I guess, you know, in reading, we all, you know, in this audience will know the story of the American Revolution better uh, what struck me was I, I couldn't, I still couldn't understand why Washington trusted him enough to put him in command of American troops uh, when he did. Well, I think it took Washington a little while. Hmm. I think that um, at first Washington believed that all that Lafayette wanted was a little bit of an opportunity for glory. But Lafayette proved time and again that no, he wanted more. And he immediately set to work, even when he was not yet given command of any American troops, he decided he was going to make himself useful in any way he could. Mm. So he started writing letters. He started writing letters to influential people in Paris, telling them how great things were going here, mm. even when mm -hmm. they weren't. And he started writing letters to Americans, telling them how much France was on their side, even if they necessarily ne weren't. Mm. And eventually, I think Washington just came to appreciate the fact that this was a man who is going to do whatever he could. Mm. He becomes devoted to Washington. He's wounded at, at Brandywine. That has to have something to do with it, too. I mean, the, the trustworthy factor of someone who's wounded in your cause and still comes back as enthusiastic as ever it must have been an extraordinary thing to see. Absolutely. So uh, Lafayette's wounded in the Battle of Brandywine on September 11th and um, then goes on to recover with the Moravian Brethren in mm. Pennsylvania. And he, again, with this Pollyanna, was the term you use, or Candide is yeah. the other name that comes well, that's, to mind. Yeah, that's what you mentioned. I think it, it's somewhere in the book or some of your materials you mentioned he's like Candide, Voltaire's Candide. And I, 
I, I thought, no, come on, ridiculous. But then I started reading, and yes, I mean, he is. It's unbelievable. It, he, he just always sees the 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 best in everyone, the best in the situation, until maybe in the French Revolution is too late. But uh, but anyway, yeah, so go on, you were saying. Well, so he goes to the Moravian Brethren. He recovers, and Washington at that point believes that he's going to recover and then go home. No. But instead, he recovers and says, okay, I'm ready to fight again. And I think that this just impressed Washington mm. and everybody. Mm. So his, uh, his great achievement in the American Revolution, as we were talking about earlier, uh, you mentioned his campaign in Virginia when he has the 2,000-odd troops uh, that, he's, uh, that he's managing to keep Cornwallis you know, nipping. He describes himself, I think, as a, as a dog nipping yeah. at the heels of another dog or a giant animal or whatever, uh, he's playing that role of, you know, running away, fighting, running away, uh, and just keeping Cornwallis on his, you know, and, and ultimately plays a crucial role in, in that process by which Cornwallis is sort of trapped. Um, how does Lafayette learn to become a battlefield commander? I mean, he, he has very little experience. He really learns from Washington. Mm. Um, in fact, it's really interesting. If you read Washington's... Um, orders that he gives to Lafayette, especially early on. Most of Washington's orders are like any other military orders, very clear, very brisk, very mm. to the point. Mm. When he writes to Lafayette, <clears throat> he takes the time to explain to Lafayette what he needs to do and why he needs to do it mm. and what the consequences will be mm. if he doesn't. Mm. And Lafayette's a really quick study. He learns mm. very quickly. And I think it's really thanks to Washington's careful tutelage that he becomes someone who is able to put aside his natural eagerness and mm. enthusiasm and learn how slowly to bide his time and think strategically. It's interesting. Uh, from my point of view, you know, I've you know, read books on Lafayette before. I, just, I, never, I guess I never got it through my thick skull that he was so... Um, he was so inexperienced militarily. I guess I thought he had a military education or had had some experience in the field. Uh, but yeah, the, to, the notion that Lafayette basically became a general in, in America under the tutelage of Washington is, is really uh, interesting. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. Mm. Well, especially because he does you know, get that reputation as one of the few people who could command an army in the French Revolution. And when he does, I mean... You know, we'll talk about that, but you know, he's in a, at one point, you know, before he loses or has to flee, he's in command of 50,000 men, which is more than Washington ever would have, you know, dreamed of, dr dr wished he had, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. I, mean, I don't think he wanted that many men, but uh, and so it must have been just a completely different, uh, you know, experience, but he had to have the confidence to do it. Uh, of course, we never really mobilized them, I guess, in any aggressive way. Well, let's talk about that then. So Lafayette is heroic. Uh, in the American Revolution, is celebrated, beloved by everyone, Washington included, and uh, and then he goes back to France. And what's that like for him? Well, it's interesting. When he first goes back to France uh, during the 1780s, he becomes really well known as America's foremost French friend, mm -hmm. and he turns his home into a sort of pilgrimage site for mm. visiting Americans, and he hosts American dinners, and John Adams is there, and Thomas Jefferson's there, and Franklin's there, and they're all coming over. And he devotes his life to things American in the 1780s. Yeah, yeah as an art historian, as a trained art historian, you're very good with, 
well, obviously the performance character, the French state this time, the courtier culture, but material culture as well, and and your description of Lafayette's cabinet and what he puts in there to 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 make that political message about himself and and who he is and what America is. It's really extraordinary. Talk a little bit about the things in his cabinet. Sure, and yeah. it's actually really interesting because, so in 1784, Lafayette returns to the United States for his first visit to a peacetime America, and he comes right here to Mount Vernon. And while he's at Mount Vernon, he's talking to Washington, and he writes home to his wife, Adrienne, and he mm. says, you know, I'm so enjoying the, dom the domesticity and the sociability here, and it's got me thinking about my cabinet mm. and how I want it to be decorated. Mm. And so he's thinking about Washington, and he says he wants to have a Declaration of Independence on his wall. And he gets it, and it's a Declaration of Independence that's engraved in gold. <laughs> that's extraordinary. I never knew that. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing, and it, and it, but it's so Lafayette, right? It's exactly the problem that he has in France, which is these ringing principles with this you know, kind of lavish uh, monarchical style. Exactly, and I think that what you mean by his, um, by his problem in France yeah. is that on the one hand, he is a member of the nobility, and he fully believes in the nobility. He fully believes that actually the nobility, is strong nobility, is the surest way to guarantee liberty in France. Yeah. And the king is required, too. And the king is required, yeah. too. So it's a, as you point out, I think it's a Montesquieuian kind of vision of the multiple estates and the way they have to sort of check and balance each other in that way. And he just wants it to be constitutional. Exactly. Yeah. What he really wants is a constitutional monarchy. Yeah. So the, the revolution, uh, you know, as I said, I used to teach the French Revolution poorly back in the day. And, you know, as with all, all great, you know, stories in history, they used to be, it used to be easy to explain them. You know, the French Revolution, this used to be this great story about the collapse of feudalism against rising bourgeoisie and, you know, the whole Marxian interpretation was fantastic um, because it made sense and it was clean and, and I mean, you know, there was chaos that ensued, but you had these kind of long causes and you have the cultural turn and everything gets tricky. You get the, you know, you get all the different ways that historians have complicated because the truth is messy. Uh, where are we at now in French historiography for why the French Revolution happens. You, you, you struck me as someone who was really, and maybe it's because the, the, the centerpiece here is Lafayette, but the, you know, the American story plays a big role in, in your story. I don't think most French historians would make it as large of a role. I think that's true. Yeah. And I, I do think, though, that it did play a large role. Mm. Um, but it's a really kind of interesting situation, though, because the American Revolution and the principles that are articulated in the Declaration of Independence, for example. Yeah, and the state constitution. And the state yeah. constitution come really to us from France mm, mm, originally, mm, from mm, France mm. and from England and from Enlightenment thinkers in Europe. Right. They come over here, they're sort of embodied and Americanized here, implemented here, and then transmitted back to France. Mm. And Lafayette is one of those people who serves, I think, as that conduit. Well, and I think that you made a you make a really interesting case about we really understand the great differences between the American and French Revolution. You know, Lafayette has a, in some ways, I think, a really good understanding that, you know, in America the institutions are so lightly, you know, embedded in the ground. Their traditions, most of the traditions, are in the direction though of 
you know, things that people want in the Enlightenment, which is more representative government or something like that. Uh, there, so there are traditions that have been around for a hundred odd years in Virginia and whatnot, but not like the French state, which is ancient and encrusted and ginormous. It's 20 million people. There's all these different layers of institutions and traditions, et cetera. Whereas America, there's not so much of that. So it's easier to have a revolution in America than it is in France, at least to get to have the same endpoint, I guess, right? I think that's absolutely right. Lafayette was among a group of people who really believed that America was a, a land where this experiment could be possible. Yeah. But France was too embedded, as you say, in its customs and its history and its traditions. Yeah. It couldn't just throw them off. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's interesting, though, he believes that because he plays, it strikes me, I mean, in reading your book, uh, he plays a crucial role in really setting gasoline on the fire at the wrong time. In France, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. he absolutely right. does. So talk a little bit then about the context of, of his role in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the, the States General gets called, the National Assembly declares itself the National Assembly. All of a sudden, he's in it. King says everybody's in the National Assembly. He doesn't seem to really be a player yet. But then the Declaration of Rights stuff, wh why is he so eager to get that out there? So, so the Declaration of Rights of Man is something that um, a lot of people in France were working on mm. that summer. It was the summer of 1789. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in France were committed to the idea that France needed a new constitution. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. some of them thought that this new constitution should be founded on founding principles of human rights. Mm -hmm. And Lafayette, because of his association with America, I think, and because of his closeness with Thomas Jefferson, is really determined to be the first person to mm. submit a draft to the National Assembly. Yeah, that's what struck me, is it did seem sort of like a grasping, strange way to put himself in front and sort of damn the torpedoes. You know, No matter what the consequences, I'm going to get my declaration out there first which showed no political savvy whatsoever. Well, see, that's the thing. Yeah. Lafayette was earnest, was enthusiastic, yeah. but a great politician he was not. Mm. And I don't mean that mm. as an insult. Right, right. Some of the people who were the greatest politicians, Talleyrand is probably the person who's best remembered. Talk about a survivor. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that struck me, too, that he was, I mean, Talleyrand's early on uh, in, in that story. I didn't realize he was, went that far back into the beginning of things. Yeah, so... But anyway, yeah. And Talleyrand, in fact, there's a comment in the book where Talleyrand is, really thinks that Lafayette does not know what he's doing. Yeah, and he's right. <laughs> yeah. In terms of politics. In terms of politics, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, neither does Governor Morris. It's a source you use quite a bit, that great diary of Governor Morris. Governor yeah. Morris became my favorite character, I have to say. My husband would hear me chuckling uh, in my home office as I was reading Governor Morris's diaries of his time in Paris. Yeah, so talk a little bit about Morris. What, what is he doing in 1789 while Lafayette is presenting his Declaration of Rights and all this? Well, Governor Morris um, was an American who initially went over, he was a New Yorker. And he initially went over uh, as, as a businessman. And he sort of became, um, how shall I put this? He fully embraced all of the delicacies that France had to offer. <laughs> right. Of every right. variety. Yes, he was slack in his moral behavior. Yes. Well, to say the least. To say the <laughs> least. Um, but he was someone who was very perceptive and very political. 
And he actually, uh, Lafayette thought that Governor Morris, the American, was an aristocrat mm, mm. Um, because Governor Morris thought that Lafayette was far too radical for what France could sustain. Mm, mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, so, but somehow Lafayette does become the darling of the Paris uh, crowd. Uh, and that struck me as strange as well. I mean, sort of, again, I, I didn't really, maybe I didn't connect it properly in my mind. He goes from being someone that he, people are thinking is timid and not doing enough. All of a sudden, he announces the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Meanwhile, in Paris, something goes on. There's some sort of riot or something. And Lafayette's bus is being carried around, and people are calling for Lafayette. Well, I think that Lafayette had, during the 1780s, made such a point of mm. identifying himself with Washington. Okay, okay. Yes, yeah, now we're getting there. That I think that what happened is that when the Bastille is stormed on July 14th, 1789, the people of Paris imagine that Lafayette can be their Washington, mm. can be the man who's going to lead his nation to a new era of liberty. Mm. And they call him and he, he comes. He does, and he first starts out as the head of the Paris militia, then renames it the National Guard, which is where we get our National Guard from, and it becomes a nationwide organization of citizen soldiers. Mm -hmm. and, and so what's his role then as commander of the National Guard? He, it's nationwide, as you say. Does he, does he really have authority? Does he, is, it, does it, is it titular? I mean, does, can he move events? Where is he at? It's a really difficult situation for him to be in, and yeah. he finds it frustrating because his immediate charge at first is to keep the peace in Paris. Mm. And this is not an easy thing to do at a time when people's heads are being paraded around on pikes. Mm. And there's one day early on uh, in, in October of 1789 where he realizes just how little control he actually mm. has over circumstances because people are starving. Mm. They're literally starving. Mm. And when people are starving, they yeah. do They're things. desperate, they're angry, they're mobilized. Yeah. Exactly. They want results. There's no results that can be given. Exactly. And Lafayette's in a position to trying to kind of calm people down a lot. And that works sometimes, but then it doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. And he's trying to calm them down, but he can't actually give them what they want, which is food. Yeah. And then on the other side, though, so he fails the king, though, as well, right? I mean, he, he isn't able to sort of assure that the king remains at the head of this thing, even though he wants him to be. It's really tragic. You know, there, Lafayette has more experiences of failures of his ability to carry out his ideals, I think. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. for example, this day in 1789, when this large crowd starts out with women and then men join in, march to Versailles, and Lafayette ends up going with them, and they demand that the king and queen come back to Paris with them. And Lafayette assures the king and queen that he'll protect them. Mm. And he really believes it. He's not duplicitous. But he brings them back to Paris, and that ends up being their final home. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. So, and then they try to escape, and he gets blamed for that, even though it's clear that he didn't have anything to do with it. And that's the beginning, really, of, of him becoming the scapegoat for both sides, it seems to me, that you make a great point of, you know, and thinking about why Lafayette has no love today. The left and the right both see him as a traitor. 
That's exactly right. So when the yeah. when the royal family flees, it's a n night that's known as a flight to Varennes because they're eventually captured in the town called Varennes. Um, they attempt to flee the country. It's so clear the king is clueless. I mean, talk about politically inept. I mean, he is he doesn't understand at all the. Uh, the optics, as we would say today, right, of his behavior. It's extraordinary. The king um, was someone who was never meant to be king. Mm. He was not bred to be king. He was not in line in uh, secession. It was, again, mm. a series of deaths and mishaps mm. that led this man, who was really never trained to be a leader, mm. and placed him in a position that was really over his head. Well, that uh, the, uh, the letter he writes, the declaration of the king and why I left... Paris or whatever it is, is great the way you describe it because it, it strikes me as uh, on the one hand there's the principal part of it which is in there but it's clear because there's other things in there that that's really not the main problem. The king is complaining about, well talk about what he's, the kind of things he's complaining sure. about. Sure, well yeah. for example, so when he's brought back uh, from Versailles with that group that Lafayette brings back in October 1789, they're moved in very hastily to the Tuileries Palace in Paris. Well, the king writes in this letter uh, that nothing was prepared for the king. This was far beneath his usual level of service and accommodations. Um, that's the kind of thing that offended him. Mm. That's extraordinary. I mean, it must have just enraged people <laughs> after all the starving and everything they'd been through, all the reforms and all that had been renounced. The whole revolution had been renounced by the person that, you know, people who are hoping for some kind of order were depending upon the king to, the, absolutely. You know, to be that grounding force. So, That's right. so that was really the beginning then of the end for the king. And that left Lafayette with very little place to stand. It's true. And Lafayette's real tragedy actually comes just about a month after that hmm. in uh, July um, of 1792. Hmm. What's that? Is that right? 1792? 1792. What, what happens? What are we describing? The Champ de Mars. Oh, yes. I just it's, suddenly drew a brain. Tumor. Well, let's see. The king is arrested at the end of 92. And, uh, yeah, so that sounds right. Yeah. The Americanist in me? Yes. Um, so about a month after the king attempts to flee yeah. to, um, to leave the country, what happens is that uh, there's a group of people who are gathered on the Champ de Mars, which today is where the Eiffel Tower stands. Mm. It's 1791. Oh, okay. I'm yeah. sorry. That's all right. So this is 1791. Okay. The king is trying to flee. So in a in, month later. In June of 1791, the king tries to flee the country. In July of 1791, a month later, a group of Parisian citizens gathers on the Champ de Mars, where the Eiffel Tower stands today. And they're jostling to sign a petition to declare the monarchy abdicated. Now Lafayette's in charge of the National Guard, and the National Guard is meant to keep the peace, and they're patrolling the perimeter on horseback, and one thing's lead to another, and stones are thrown, and what eventually happens is that the National Guard opens fire on the people. Mm. And Lafayette is seen from that day forward by the left in France to have been the man who ordered the National Guard to fire on the people. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's that's basically it for him. Once the king is arrested and uh, and the republic is declared, and the, and then you get all sorts of other things. So Lafayette resigns, gets out of Dodge, 
but gets himself back into some kind of power. He's named to lead these troops. What's going on with that? It's really kind of complicated because what happens is that Lafayette, in that moment, in the massacre of the Champ de Mars is what it becomes known as, mm. Lafayette alienates the people, but not necessarily the monarchy mm. or the mm -hmm. army at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and so he also has some very close relatives who are very well placed in the army, and he has some influence still in the army. And so mm -hmm. he's initially placed in command. I see. Mm -hmm. Until the day comes when he attempts to get his men to swear allegiance to the nation, the law, and the king, and they refuse. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's when Lafayette loses the army is when he's lost. Mm. That's all over for Lafayette. So Lafayette uh, is branded a criminal at some point? A criminal, a traitor. There's uh, warrants out for his arrest. Uh, this is the dangerous time. And so he flees to, where does he flee to? He flees across the border to what's now Belgium, but was the Austrian Netherlands. And it's ironic because on the one hand, there's a warrant out for his arrest as an enemy of the revolution. And what ends up happening is he gets across the border and he's arrested by the Austrians as an enemy of the monarch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's exactly what you've described then. So he's now... Uh, loathed by the people, he's loathed by the monarchy, there's nowhere for him to stand. So why can't uh, the Americans help him and help get him out of prison? It's really another sort of, I think, sad moment in mm -hmm. Lafayette's life, which is that he immediately starts writing to Americans. So he's arrested by the Austrians, and he immediately starts writing to the Americans, saying, you have to get me out, you have to take me up and claim me as an American. Yeah, I'm an American citizen, I'm an American officer, all these very bold claims. <laughs> And the Americans at this point are not so sure that they can actually do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, George Washington, I, I shouldn't be telling you this, but yeah. my understanding is that Washington um, believed that the United States should not necessarily embroil itself in foreign mm -hmm. wars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I think there was really nothing they could do ultimately without a lot more money than they could muster at that moment in time, and, and it was a very tricky time for American domestic policy as well as di diplomatic uh, policy trying to stay out of this, what is about to become a European war of revolution, basically. So yeah, you capture that uh, very well now, uh, but that, the book mostly covers that part of Lafayette's life. You don't do much with the end. Talk a little about, like, why did you focus so much only on the active portion, I guess the public portion of Lafayette's career? It's a great question. I think I focused really on the American and French revolutions because I was interested in this fundamental question, which is how did one man obtain such strikingly different reputations on two sides of the mm -hmm. Atlantic? Mm -hmm. And the moments in which he forged those reputations were those moments that he was acting in public. So you end the book with a very poignant afterward. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Well, maybe just a year or two ago now, I, was, uh, I wanted to go to Lafayette's grave, which is in Paris, in a cemetery that is not very frequently visited. It's not very frequently visited because it's only open for sort of on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 2 to 4 if the caretaker happens to be home and feels like opening the door. <laughs> 
it is, in other words, not Jim Morrison's grave <laughs> where thousands <laughs> of people go constantly. Um, so I attempted to see the grave and I failed, but I did manage to um, walk in and sit down to a chapel that was next to the cemetery. And this is the chapel um, on which are inscribed on the walls the names of over a thousand people who are guillotined very nearby mm. uh, in a single month in 1794. Wow. And in fact, Lafayette's wife's mother, sister, and grandmother were all executed, and their names are all there. Mm. And I was sitting in this chapel, really for want of anything else to do, because I had failed in my attempt to visit the grave. Mm. And a nun came in, and I started talking to her, and I said, you know, I'm curious. I've been working on this book, and it seems to me that the French don't love Lafayette the way Americans do. Is that right? Do you think that's true? And she said, yes. Mm. And I said, so why do you think it is? Mm. And she thought about it, and she said, well, you know, people like simple stories. And the French Revolution was not a simple time, and Lafayette was not a simple person. Mm. And it was something where I felt as though she had encapsulated in those few sentences everything I had been trying to understand for the past seven years. Well, it's brilliantly, brilliantly put, and I really appreciate the time you spent telling us about your new work. One final question for you before we part uh, is, uh, what uh, is the next project going to be? Do you want to know what I'm actually thinking of? Yes. <laughs> Alexander Hamilton and global trade. Oh, well, interesting. Yes, very timely. You're a New Yorker, so and you've, have you seen the new Hamilton play? I have not, but I have tickets for April 4th, oh. and it is written by someone who is an alum of my high school. Is that right? It is indeed. And in fact, my high school alumni society has tickets for tonight, and I'm not there because I'm here at Mount Vernon oh, with well, you. Well, welcome to Mount Vernon. Thank you for being here. You're going to enjoy it. Uh, and it's been a great pleasure for me to have this conversation with you. The book is The Marquis Lafayette Reconsidered by Noft, and uh, go get yours right now. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.